This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queen's College. I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're very happy to meet Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland, College Park. He's the author of Enduring Bonds, Inequality, Marriage, Parenting, and Everything Else That Makes Families Great and Terrible from the University of California Press coming out this spring. He also runs a great sociology blog, Family Inequality on WordPress. He's running Context, he's chairing the ESA section on the family, and he's spearheading one of the discipline's most exciting projects, in my opinion, Sharp Time. He's uh, at the cusp of sociology's engagement of new media. We got a lot to talk about. You're not going to want to miss this episode. It's a pretty, pretty long resume there. All right. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Before we begin, I just want to announce uh, this is episode 12. And uh, guys, when we started the podcast, that was our initial commitment was to see it through 12 episodes so we made it congratulations Yay. Uh, yeah, and i wish you luck in uh, finding my replacement <laughs> <laughs> all right uh anybody got some banter hmm. so much of the same the one you know i'm gonna make this short and sweet um i'm just gonna say i told you so <laughs> about the backlash <laughs> what subject do you not recall last week when we were talking about Roy Moore and someone said, oh, this will be old news. He'll be out by next week. And I said, no way. And, you know, who's who's Cassandra now? You know, Cassandra mythology, you know. Well, I, I, I've never known him to quit anything without an explicit court order and U.S. Marshals showing up to escort him out of the building. So... I wouldn't have predicted he'd be out. So I'm not sure who made that prediction. I'm just saying, go back and listen to the podcast from last last week. Everyone out there listening to this podcast, uh, that's an <laughs> invitation to go back uh, and and actually listen to all of my previous predictions. There you go. I think that was my only one, but, you know. Clairvoyant. <laughs> Got any more, uh, any more takes on what's happened since then? Yeah, enlighten us with your prophecies that are infallible. What stock should we buy? (laughs) Well, hey, pick a stock, any stock. Wall Street seems like it doesn't know what's going on on Main Street. So um, I don't know who's buying all that stock, but um, it's certainly not me. Uh, And just to to go on, I mean, if you recall last week, I said that uh, what I was worried about was backlash. and, And, you know, I made reference to... To Ford's book, The Race Card, and how he basically said what happens is that, um, you know, number one, people piggyback on legitimate claims of racial bias, right? And that are that are often either not true or or not serious. And um, and then people who don't want to believe that racial bias is a thing point to those incidents and say, you see, it's not a thing. Right. And then backlash ensues. And I'm, you know, while I think that, you know, the floodgates being open and and women and um, and men finally coming out and and reporting these horrible incidents, I think it's I mean, it's not good that it happened, but it's good 
that it's not being buried anymore. I'm that I think what's going to happen is you're going to have some some individuals creeping in there um, with the kinds of stories that people who don't want to believe this is real or who know it's very real but want it to go away. Um, I, I think that they're going to they're they're just going to latch onto those and things are going to get really ugly. So what do you mean specifically? Do you mean like a um, somebody makes a serious allegation, but it's not shown to be credible? Or do you mean that somebody makes an accusation that it seems very ambiguous or petty or something like that, but it's like, and there's a backlash to, um, you know, something that seems very subtle and like, well, that's not that big a deal. I think, I think both. I I think, Uh I think, I, I definitely think both. Um, You know, I think, you know, men and women who feel belittled by, you know, by this, by certain kinds of behaviors, um, you know, I think they have a right to complain, but I don't think um, they're in the same category as someone who's been sexually assaulted. And, um, and, and some of the things, some of the things that I've been seeing on Me Too, I like. I kind of feel as though there are individuals who who think that those small incidents, although small incidents like that, you know, especially if you experience them daily, I'm sure can feel like they're that huge. Um, um, I, like I'm, I'm just afraid that um, you know, if everything is sexual harassment, then no one believes that sexual harassment exists. You, you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, exactly. And I, I just like earlier today, I was seeing somebody pointing out that, that there's something weird about the shitty men in media list and that it includes like bona fide serial rapists like Harvey Weinstein. But also there's some people where they're included on the list because he yelled at an intern, you know, which mm-hmm. should be nice to your interns and give them constructive criticism. But that doesn't mean you're you belong on the same list as a serial rapist. I think it's interesting that two of the that that, that we have two different kind of institutional things happening at once with this, where one is the media, like the really well sourced stuff on Moore or Weinstein from the Washington Post or the New York Times. Um, but they're really driving towards Philip, they want to explode. Philip, it's pronounced yeah. the Amazon Washington Post. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Amazon Washington. Post. Um, they, they really want to. They want to publicize like they're and they they build these cases with the. And on the other hand, we have these big institutional things like Title IX offices on campuses, where their whole mission is to is well, some of them really, of course, want to respond responsibly, but really institutionally, they're kind of about burying cases. And yeah. and there's a kind of the conflict of, uh, you know, uh, uh, what what's the right way to bring these things out? And, and um, I agree. I uh, I agree with Leslie on the the, the risk here. And, and but I, you know, that's, that's probably not new. No, definitely not at all. You know, what does encourage me, though, is it could have gone in different ways. There could have been a backlash against outing sexual predators. But it seems like in the highly partisan environment, the response was to find democratic sexual predators. And now there's like this partisan rush to uncover sexual predators, which is fantastic because it basically means, you know, uh, people have gotten much more vigilant about it. There's like a lot more energy that's being dedicated to outing people. Well, it's like James Madison said about the separation of powers in the constitution. You set ambition against ambition, the best way, (laughs) you know, and you know the the overall the I want to screw you by accusing your guys is overwhelming the I want to protect my guys from being accused. 
you know, yeah. so that, you know, that you do have some, you know, extremely unprincipled uh, Republicans and emphasis on some, you know, saying like, well, you know, maybe more is a pederast, maybe he isn't. But, you know, the important thing is that we don't have a, a liberal Alabama junior senator for a whopping two years. Um, and, you know, and then you have others saying like, well, you know, more is a pederast, but, you know, Franken groped somebody through Kevlar armor and, you know, had a rather sketchy excuse about we need to kiss as a rehearsal. Well, so I have a question for all three of you. Uh, once again, uh, I'm the one, I'm the one woman here. Um, you know, so I know how, I know how I feel about, um, about all of this coming out. Um, you know, as a woman, um, I would say like by more than anything else, in, in some ways I'm heartened, um, because I've known that this has been going on for almost my entire life. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and in some ways it's, it's really great to not, not that it's happening still, but that it's happening or it's happened, but now people are talking about it. Right. And not, and, Mm -hmm. and women don't, and, and the men who are also the victims, um, of harassment and, and assault, um, and misconduct, uh, don't seem ashamed anymore to say, Hey, this is what happened. Um, and also I, I have three girls, uh, you know, part of me wants to think, oh, wow, this, this might be a shift that will be really, really good for them. But totally. as men, how, how are you feeling about this? I, I really see it through the prism of being a father of girls for the most part. You know, it's like something that I'm, I'm glad. And the other thing is, is I, it was I, it's something that I never wanted in my own workplace. Like I like people in my own business to be professional. I think people should be professional at work. So. I, I kind of like the change. <laughs> yeah, I have a, um, I have some inclination to, um, uh, uh, you know, to uh, to uh, announce that I'm not a sexual harasser and, and <laughs> to get myself to get myself, you know, taken out of the category you of. You heard it here of first. What, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Bre- breaking news. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but but one of the things that so. One of the things that gets me is the um, the ubiquity of this is just making me think about and think poorly about all the men who are doing this, who I, you know, probably friends with, and I don't know that they do this kind of stuff. So it's, that's just kind of depressing. It's not, it's not upsetting or traumatizing in the way that um, being the victim of harassment or, or assault could be. But um, I feel kind of like um, the, my, my professional environment is, is just, is more I like it's contaminated in a way that I hadn't really thought about it that much. So that's just my naivete. I, I know that there's like some nasty surprises, but if I take the universe of men who I work with, I don't know anybody to be a predator or even close. But I mean, maybe it's a guide to nothing, though. Maybe you don't know what other other people are like uh, behind closed doors. Or well, that's the great defense. I mean, the one thing they can always say: the guy who who everybody assumes is not that guy can always say to the his victim, "Nobody will believe you because I'm not that guy." But what's funny about this is how many of these things were expected. So like, you know, uh, very few of these seem like, oh, I never I would never have believed that about this person. Right. Uh, for the most part, you you hear that and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of figured that, um, you know, so like Harvey Weinstein, you know, people didn't necessarily nobody knew that he was a serial rapist, but everybody kind of knew that he um, was a colossal asshole. 
uh, who, and he even had a reputation for sexual harassment. So in that respect, it didn't come across as that shocking. And then the ones where it is a little surprising, those seem to be the milder cases, right? So like right. Al Franken and um, John Lasseter seem to be much more on the, you know, Michael Scott, you know, awkward, annoying boss end of the continuum than on the Harvey Weinstein serial rapist end of the continuum. Yeah, you know, I you know, the other thing that's been interesting, and this is the last thing I'm going to say on this is, you know, kind of, you know, the relitigation of Clarence Thomas, um, mm-hmm. to a lesser degree, and, and, and also Bill Clinton, um, that's been coming up. Um, so yeah, um, I, I just I find it really interesting. Because on the one hand, with Clinton, you know, the defense is, well, you know, Paul, like Starr went in there and he uncovered every stone and every rock. And if, you know, and if the rape allegations against Clinton had been real, then he would have, then he would have found it out. Um, yeah. And, but I mean, I, I, I get that. But part of me is like, well, you know, the climate back then, the climate back then, I just, I don't know if that's, if that's so. And, and then also the fact that Clarence Thomas um, got confirmed to the Supreme Court, you know, you'd see, I mean, looking at his, his CV, you would have been like, we just need any excuse to not confirm this guy. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, so the the Clinton thing is interesting to me, right? So um, the, the the way I I think is the most interesting way to look at it is imagine the counterfactual where his wife won the mm-hmm. the presidency a year ago. Um, would we be having this kind of cultural moment, or if we were, would it be extending to him? And and another way to put this right is that I, I think one reason why. Um, he is being caught up in this is, you know, not only objectively because he did skeezy things, right? And, um, you know, you can argue about which ones you believe and all that sort of things. I, you know, Vox has written up that they think that like the Juanita Broderick um, uh, allegations are plausible and that they, and actually when you hear some of the details of like the Weinstein allegations, they follow a similar MO. Uh-huh. Um, but, but aside from that, even if you put the Broderick allegations aside, you know, the other things he did, he, he definitely was a, a serial, uh, sexual harasser in the workplace, um, for decades. So, uh, you know, would he be caught up in this if, uh, Hillary was president? And, and I think probably not, right? I think that, um, obviously the Republicans would, uh, you know, make that accusation, but I don't think the Democrats would be receptive to it in the way that they are. That you, well, you know, there you see- I mean, Trump Trump brought the uh, the Clinton accusers to one of the debates, right? And it didn't really take. That's right. As, yeah. uh, I mean, maybe it motivated his base a little bit more. That's right. But it was not. It did not explode into a big campaign issue. Yeah, that's a good point, right? And um, but I, I I don't know. I I don't know if you'd be seeing a fair number of. Um, you know, Democrats and left-wing uh, journalists and people like that saying like, whoa, it is time to reevaluate Clinton's legacy. Maybe he was right after all. I, I mean, maybe his accusers were right after all. Well, how much of this is 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 not 
that Clinton isn't president, but that Trump is, right? I mean, you know, there were, uh, I mean, there are accusations leveled against him, right? And, you know, and in the absence of being able to, um, to get him to actually address those at this moment, you know, it's like we rewind, right? And we're like, wait a minute. So the counterfactual here is that in the absence of Trump, let's say that there's some alternate universe where Rubio was nominated one or, you know, um, and then, yeah. So let's say, you know, we're in the Mitt Romney's second uh, term right now. um, And the thing about Weinstein still came out. Um, Are you saying that it wouldn't have spread to, you know, be like a broader cultural moment? Obviously, anybody learning the facts of Weinstein is going to be horrified no matter what's happening. Politically, but no, I'm saying, for sure. would it become a big I, deal if we hadn't have had the women's march and all that sort of business? And the, yeah, and the well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying like the women's march, I think, un- unleashed something, right? Mm-hmm. It unleashed something. And while, you know, we haven't seen like the same kind of like extremely visible, um, visible movement, right? At, at least not in those same kinds of numbers. I think, I, I think things have, I think things have been brewing and I think the Weinstein thing coming out, it's like, boom, you know, we got the movement ready to move on something, right? You know, here we go, you a know? Key, a key and, issue I think is also the motivation or the, what, what makes the victims feel like they can come forward now or that it's it's that they can they can take that risk and and subject themselves to that and i think there could be as far as uh, uh gabriel's hypothesis i think there could be a like a there's some cataclysmic kind of end of world type thinking that is associated with trump being president um which may be making more people say fuck it i'm gonna tell this story oh god <laughs> yes. i don't know i mean if we're all gonna be blown up you know I'm not, I, I, I want this thing to come out first. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And now we turn to Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland College Park. Philip wears many hats. He has a great blog, uh, Family Inequality. He edits Context. He's chair of the ASA section on the sociology of the family. And he's spearheading a new and very exciting open research platform, Social Archive. We have a lot uh, to talk about. Just just very briefly, before we get started, I don't want these topics to get lost in the shuffle. Uh, can you tell us, uh, is there any news with the section on uh, the sociology of the family? Uh, so, no, sociology of the family just putters along. We have, uh, 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 I don't know, seven, eight hundred members. We produce sessions every year at the ASA conference. We give our awards. It's pretty much a normal business. And uh, context? Uh, how's context going? Context, the exciting news is I'm done. Syed Ali and I are finishing our three-year term. The last issue is coming out. Uh, the fall issue is in production now. Uh, so when we uh, when that goes out in the week or two, uh, Rashan Ray and Fabio Rojas will take over uh, Context. And they have a lot of great plans. And it's going, to be, um, it's going to be very exciting. And I will be done with it. Always the best thing you can say about a service role. <laughs> context is a great job. You know, if, if if the future editors of Context are listening to this, I urge you to um, to check it out because it is one of the fun ones. All right. Well, I wanted to get the ball rolling with the Social Archive. Uh, can you start maybe tell us what Social Archive is, uh, how it works? Sure. Social Archive is a paper archive or a paper server, uh, and it takes its uh, uh, inspiration from archive, from math and physics, which is A-R-X-I-V, uh, or Kai, 
I don't know, maybe Gabriel knows about the Greek or you all probably know about the Greek. Um, uh, but they started um, uh, math and physics, which have really long lead times in publication. They started uh, about 25 years ago or so um, uh, uh, sharing papers in preprint form before they were peer reviewed and published um, just to just to get things moving faster and also to uh, to have open, uh, to have uh, to have papers be free, um, and then just in the last couple of years, this has really taken off and spread across disciplines. Um, so we started one year ago um, with Soch Archive, and um, uh, we cover all social sciences. Were it was created by sociologists and librarians, um, but it uh, uh, it's it's for papers in any uh, discipline in, in social sciences, arts, humanities, education, and law. Those are our uh, those are our categories, and. The way it works is um, it's a free server. Uh, you you create an account, you uh, log in, you upload your paper in uh, uh, just just as a paper uh, in your own your own formatting. It goes through a simple moderation just to check um, that it is a paper that it seems to be written by you that it's in a language we can uh, that our moderators can read, um, and then and then it's shared publicly. It gets a little bibliographic record. It gets a DOI, and um, uh, uh, and then you can do whatever you're going to do with it after that. Send it off to peer review, or present it at conferences, or or whatever. Yeah, and I can I can attest to it from the user side. Um, so my paper that I published in uh, Philips Journal, or what is now you know Philips former journal, uh, I put the code and the data and the actual paper itself as well as, well as kind of the extended club mix version of the paper up on social archive. <laughs> and, um, and then for my paper, the Tundra review now at a journal, I, there's a really cool feature where you can have kind of an anonymous posting of the data so that you can have your peer reviewers have access to your data, but without breaching double blind. Yeah, that's a key. Um, a key thing is that the social archive lives on the platform of the open science framework, it's called. And um, so uh, w what Gabriel's talking about there is you can have um, associated files with it, um, data code, other drafts, versions, and so on. Um, and those are sort of forever associated with the paper. Um, uh, uh, but they also do they do have that feature where you can generate a link, a, sh a sharing link, which will share it anonymously. But that's, a, that's one of the cool features. Traditionally, we've only been circulating written reports of people's final findings. And the idea that we can deconstruct research and use each other's scripts or share data easily um, and see how the process uh, develop in a transparent way, I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, has yes, there been any successes? Like, have you gotten any sense of it gaining traction yet or is it still starting out? Yes. Yeah, so the, so like Gabriel's example is one, um, there have been a, um, so, so it's, it's, it's spreading mostly so far among, um, the social scientists who are already kind of online a lot. So we have, a all the sociologists on Twitter. To, uh, get back to work and write my papers instead of recording <laughs> right. podcasts with you. Uh, yeah, that can't hurt, you know, uh, they have the, so the people who have like the easiest uptake are the people who kind of see it all the time. But so we have about, uh, almost 1700 papers, um, in a, in a, in a bunch of disciplines and, um, uh, you know, they are trickling in at about three, four five a day. Um, uh, what, what's happening is, um, you know, people are starting to build up their success stories, I think. So one of the things that happens is like Gabriel's example, you have a paper that's under review somewhere you can share it, um, 
when it gets published later, you can you can um, that they'll be linked together. You know that how how it's done technically is pretty simple. But when if somebody stumbles on it on Search Archive in the future, the Search Archive version will be the free version, um, even if his subsequently published version is is behind a paywall somewhere. So it also becomes a way of sharing freely um, articles that are subsequently mm-hmm. paywalled, mm-hmm. Um, and. and and it's it's so the 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 easiest the easiest use case where it's really worked the 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 best for people is when they have an article that's sort of accepted you know if you think about the way it used to be uh um a year ago you'd run into somebody at a conference and say boy i've got a you know a great paper coming out you're going to love it and then mm-hmm. like that's the end mm-hmm. but now you can say well i have a great paper coming out and here you can read it you know of course you could have put it on your website before or whatever but now this is sort of institutionalized you can say it's peer reviewed it's definitely okay it's going to be in a fancy journal it really matters and you don't have to wait 18 months to read it you can read it here and and doing it that way without undermining the um, the traditional publishing process is that's sort of our easiest sell and i and i think that's where it's it's working best for people is there any type of traction being gained in sort of posting null findings or uh, anything of that sort well i mean this is part of a much bigger set of questions which is why do we have this um really archaic and hidebound method of publishing that is publishing articles only articles only when they're done and then when they're published they're finished and it's over mm-hmm. um uh and and that's related to the problem of what about null findings what about findings that are not exciting mm-hmm. um uh, uh and and there's really no um uh it's easy to do that here like i have done a few uh papers on social archive that are just very short empirical reports or something i really didn't have time to write up and go through peer review with, Mm -hmm. but I provide the data and code. It's a census analysis or something that's pretty straightforward. I say, look, no one's, no one's done the divorce rate yet for uh, 2015 with some basic controls. Here it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and I share the code and data. Uh, And, you know, I think if we can start changing the workflow a little so that um, we're more accustomed to uh, you know, to collaborating earlier, sharing earlier in the research process, um, we'll start breaking out of that um, that thing where everybody's in their office until an article is done, and then it kind of slides out from under the door in finished form. Do you find that um, most of most of the people um, who who are submitting um, do they tend to just be quant people, or or are you getting a mix? Oh no no no! It's um uh it's a big it's a mix um and, and across disciplines. I mean some some niches are more um are more early adopters than others. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and not everybody has to share their data. I mean I know this is a big issue with ethnography and quali- qualitative work in general. Where um, what yeah. do you want me to publish all of my field notes? Um, yeah, that's what uh, I was. A- that's why I was asking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, which is a great discussion. You know, there's a great debate to be had about um, uh, about that. Um, but but it's certainly not. It's not required at all. I mean, it, it's. But you know, one of the things that like um, like you ask about the issue of the you know uh, research notes and null findings. It's one. Of the, it's one of the differences between qualitative work and like stuff I do is all secondary data sets. So so a, an ethnographer goes into the field or interviews a bunch of people and all this you know. 10,000 pages of field notes, a million words, and they always tell us this, you know. And then they produce a book, which is 200 pages, mm-hmm. and then – and we trust them that they've, you know, done it right or whatever. But then it's, then they just walk away and it's sort of – you know, um, it, there's no other – I don't think in the other parts of the discipline we are used to – um, it's it sort of – it would sort of be like if I did census analysis and I just published the regression table – 
And that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so like, the, what, where's the descriptive statistics, and where's the the data and code for someone else? So it's a really, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a non, it's a really difficult and complicated question for uh, for qualitative researchers. But there is a, a way that there that there were on different different pages on this issue of of sharing and openness for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't have a, I don't have a resolution to that, but um, uh, one of the things, one of our philosophical. Um, one of the things we're trying to get at is um, we want to make it useful for um, everybody, regardless of their style of work and regardless of their overall philosophical orientation towards open scholarship or whatever. So if you just want to put your completed papers up, um, that's great. If you want to do drafts, you can do drafts. You can do data and code. You can do um, multiple versions. Uh, uh, you can collaborate with strangers. Um, you know, there's all different styles, but um we're trying to push everything in the direction of at least getting people to consider opening up their work. I think it could be really awesome. You know, you, the, the discipline is small, but it's also very big. And, and like the, the chance to look up work in progress from people, if everybody were to put their research memos up and their partial findings and works in progress, I think it'd be easy, easier for people to find others who share their research interest and, Take a look at their code, share data. I got a lot of learning. It could be really great. You know, um, uh, Jeff Spees, who is the developer of the Open Science Framework, likes to say that if you, if somebody makes a critical comment early in the process, yeah. they're your collaborator for life. And if they make a critical comment <laughs> after it's published, they're your enemy for life. <laughs> so, so it's pretty good to um, to get your ideas up, get your name on them, get a timestamp and say, look, I had this idea. I'm working on this thing. I have some preliminary results and let's talk. It's much different from, um, from you know, waiting two years yeah. and having it appear as a finished thing. You know, I think that uh, people face a very strong disincentive in our current environment to come across as wrong. And I'd sure like to see there develop a norm where we uh, look at each other's works and process and take a constructive attitude and correct each other's work. And and as opposed to, you know, hiding mistakes that we make or, you know, trying to maintain the pretense that we're never wrong or that we, we don't make mistakes. And I feel like opening up could do that. There's um I had two experiences so far with American Sociological Review where I sent comments pointing out um I don't get to get into the details <laughs> don't get me started on the details to where I sent comments to the editors with like absolutely demonstrably proving that things they had published were wrong and in both cases you know they're not the most serious things in the world were wrong but just things that were definitely wrong in both cases the response was and these were 15 years apart um Yes, well, you're right, but you know we don't need to make a big scandal out of it. We don't need to. Uh, we don't need to um, allocate our precious pages to it. Mm. Um, you know, so this idea, I'm totally agreeing with you. This idea that um, to be a little bit wrong is sort of a career-ending or scandalous, or you're going to make lifelong enemies instead of um, you know, hey, gosh, wait, try that, try try this variable. You know, maybe that'll work. Um, uh, and and although what's funny about that is ASR has been publishing more comment and replies. I feel like there were, uh, well, I'm looking through it right now. Hmm. I feel like there were, so there's at least two and I think three this year, um, which is a lot. And are, are they not knock down, drag out things where people end up enemies for life? I, I, I don't know, but right. And my favorite That's part good. of a comment and reply is the reply where somebody's always like, well, 
you know, even though you showed that my data was based just on a coding error and it turns out it was just a simulation that I forgot I programmed, I'm still right, you know. So, like, uh, the best one of those is Willie Asso saying, like, well, maybe people do have sex a thousand times a week. You don't know, you know. Uh, but, um, but, you know, even if, let's assume that ASR goes Prevent. even further and they publish a common reply every issue, right? It, it, it still wouldn't necessarily be enough. Yeah, it's not the they, process. You know, you still need a process is, to allow right. things. And you know, let's take for the sake of argument and say that, um, you know, you showed pretty uh, definitively that, you know, or at least very plausibly that um, Goffman's, you know, quantitative component, if you want to call it that, had some problems with it or was implausible or didn't match the census data. Um, you know, but they just they kind of had the attitude of like, well, you know, if you raise this in review it would have been a whole nother round of ASR of R&R or even a rejection. Whereas you're raising it ex post. So there's kind of a notion of as long as you're not completely destroying the paper, we're going to uh, let it go. Um, and so this, I'm agreeing with you that this allows kind yeah. of an intermediate stage. Well, if there's a problem, it may be secondary on a secondary point, but there is a problem and let's flag it. There's a stronger, um, larger argument about the about the publishing process, which is um, uh, an argument for post-publication review, um, which uh, is a, is a whole different issue. I mean, what we're doing now is allowing people to kind of open up earlier within the existing process. Um, but this idea that it's, when it's done, it's done is 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 kind of poisonous, and it and the fact that it's so tied to reputations, I think, is a problem. Alice Goffin said in one of her interviews. Um, you know, if I had mm -hmm. to do it again, I would have written a methodological appendix explaining that point. Um, mm -hmm. But there was no reason why she couldn't have done that then. Mm -hmm. You know, the book. So, sorry, the book is published, so there's no way in the world yeah. anybody could ever possibly learn this information now because the project is yeah. done. Um, it's just it's not a. There's there's no reason to run research that way. Um, one of the interesting things that it's off Search Archive, but on the Open Science mm -hmm. Framework, the platform allows is forking a project. So the so the project um, as you as you build the project you've got your research materials or transcripts or interview code or whatever they are it saves everything it saves a complete history of the project as you put things up um, and then you can go back to to a point in time um, and create a duplicate of the entire project at that moment and take it in a different direction. So you could say, let's go back to before I in introduced that variable and um, try some other variables and produce, you know, and then you're off in another direction for the different paper and and so on. And and there is a there's there are other ways to do this, um, which we really should uh, we should experiment with. So uh, something I wanted to contrast social archive to favorably is. You know, if you search on Google Scholar or whatever, you, you end up seeing that a lot of people post their papers on ResearchGate. And the and I forget there's another service that's basically the same thing. Academia.edu. So, uh, <laughs> and, you know, a couple of years ago, the University of California adopted an open access policy where all papers we write as University of California professors have to be posted in an open access forum. And it could be the university's own open access forum, or it could be a third party such as Social Archive. Um, and what's interesting is that they explicitly um, exclude academia.edu and ResearchGate. And you know, one reason they sometimes give, and I know you sometimes feel like this, is that, um, well, they're for profit and so we don't trust them. I myself don't have those kind of priors, right? I don't feel like something being um, uh, for profit is necessarily disqualifying. There's plenty of for profit things that are great. Um, but 
in this case, you know, evaluating it on the merits, these things suck. Uh, and, <laughs> so you know, and, and in particular, they're, they're less platforms for hosting your paper than platforms for constantly finding excuses for spamming you mm-hmm. about, you know, you know, so it's like, oh, somebody you cited just posted a new paper. Yeah. Why don't you come read it? And, and they're doing that. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me thing that, you know, a lot of apps and websites and whatnot do the whole like, you know, do you want to turn on notifications for this Web page? Well, there, there's no, a I marketer who's like, uh, we need to increase user engagement. Like that's a exactly exactly. Yeah. But whereas like, uh, you know, fill up your program. It, it, I mean, you don't you don't give a damn about user engagement. You just care about, right. you know, giving me a place to post my code and my paper and my data. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yes, I agree. And I actually don't have, um, I, I mean, I guess uh, something being for profit um, gives me one reason to be skeptical, but it's not disqualifying. Sure. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm not, um, uh, I'm, I'm maybe close to your position on that. Um, but I think w- one of the key questions is, um, um, is, 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 is the perfect, is there, is this reason for being right? So, in, so I think ResearchGate and academia are more like Facebook in that the user is the product and the content is the, uh, you know, and, and what you get for it is how they, is how they attract. Well, not it. only that, but they have a social, a social spam growth strategy, right? Where they, their, their right, fundamental growth yeah. strategy is find out ways to demand that you spam everybody in your address book hmm. to get them to alter right. the And, and also tiered membership, or at least they were floating that idea where if you paid uh, to a premium membership, you'd get more of like more people would get spammed with yeah. your stuff. <laughs> um, That's so, but, but it's also, <laughs> right. Um, we, I think we also want to think about ways that the research community, however that's defined, you know, researchers, universities, libraries, um, can run these things, and which is sort of with a different with a different outlook, and and that's one way that you would sort of probably notice the difference. Um, but the other is, um, you know, we're on an open source platform. If if the Center for Open Science, which is our host, sells out, mm-hmm. um, you could download the whole thing and and put it up on your own server if you wanted to. All their code is on GitHub, and um, uh, and the the thing is replicable. And that's sort of a, that's a principled thing, which I, I'm happy mm-hmm. with. I don't know if it's absolutely essential. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting with the, when you think about these, you know, this that kind of institutional imperative you mentioned at, at um, California. Um, if we had, um, um, you know, we're, we're not that far away from being able to do um, um, more um, expansive participation in these things with uh, our universities, our libraries, uh, and our professional associations buying into these um, concepts. So, so, I mean, I think those are great. I, I actually don't think a lot of University of California faculty, I mean, I think a lot are not actually doing that, what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but uh, those kind of initiatives are good, and we need to have these things in place to take advantage of them. Because at the same time, um, Elsevier uh, is... Uh, is building infrastructure to play that role also. Um, and maybe it'll be great and we'll all end up using it um, or it'll be terrible and we'll all get stuck yeah. using it. But I'd like to, I'd like to imagine that we're going to have a, a fighting chance to, um, to put something up that's in the public. Well, I, I think what you're saying about the, that open science framework allows you to mirror the project is, uh, is really, you know, it, that doesn't just seem like, Oh, these are like open source fanatics who, um, you know, insist on using doing everything through Emacs. Uh, I think there actually is a, pla- a practical upshot to that, which is, you know, it, it provides resistance against damage and censorship. And we actually have seen that sort of thing happen where um, there was a series of um, ADA lawsuits against universities for posting academic podcasts. Uh, 
and in particular posting podcasts of um, lectures for courses. And the way the ADA... Because they weren't captured. Yes, because they didn't also provide a transcript. And so it's on the logic of if there's one kid in the playground who's diabetic, then none of the kids can have ice cream. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so most universities, because, you know, putting up a podcast is cheap. You know, the, the room already has a microphone. All you need to do is, you know, patch a copy of that feed over to a central server and then put an RSS on it. It's the kind of thing that scripts and scales. Um, most universities, whereas transcripts are not scalable, most universities just took down their academic podcast. So for instance, my lecture course has a podcast, but it's gated to only be accessible to UCLA students. And there's nothing I can do about that. What's the rationale um, for gating it to UCLA only? Because so that they don't get sued by ADA trolls. Oh, interesting. And, um, so to, to hook this to Philip's point, because Berkeley had a copyleft license on all of its academic podcasts, even though they put took the podcast down to avoid ADA trolls, there was nothing to stop anybody else from mirroring them. And in fact, an open source project took all of the um, Berkeley lectures, you know, thousands of hours of high quality academic lecture content and um, mirrored them so that you can still have access to them even though Berkeley itself wasn't hosting them. Yeah, that's good. You know, I think um, uh, I would just put in a plug for the accessibility issue. You know, Berkeley could also, um, there is software that can uh, that can create transcripts, which are maybe 90%. Oh, if, if it's doable in a scalable way, I'm all for it. But if it's <laughs> right, realistically right. a choice, yeah, yeah, if yeah, you yeah. have to pay $5,000 per course to have it hand transcribed, or, you know, yeah. then there, nobody's going to do that. Right. No, but your point is is well taken that whatever the institutional um, um, contamination or bias or or, um, uh, or or obstacles that are put in place, um, having it having having your content be open allows you know creative solutions to that. Is I think that's yeah. It doesn't have to be the ADA. It could be that um, you know there there's some troll campaign you know attacking the university for hosting it or whatever. Right, or if you think about the um, the third world studies article uh, that got taken down because uh, it was uh, so unpopular, yeah. or um, or other things where um, where there's outcry and and people try to erase the existence of the offending. Exactly, material. it's insurance against the memory hole. Well, I'm always going to remember that article. So, <laughs> all right, should we shift gears? Go to the book then. Sure. Oh. Yeah, okay. I mean. It's Thanksgiving, right? It's Thanksgiving. I mean, a book about about family. Well, actually, I think. actually, it's the Monday after Thanksgiving by the time anyone hears this. You know, you're breaking the illusion of the magic of podcasts, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, how about well, how uh -huh. about this? How about we pretend that it is the Monday after yeah. Thanksgiving, and I'm still getting over yeah. the trauma. So. Um, <laughs> And so I think that's a great segue into oh. enduring bonds. The trauma is <laughs> happening right now over here. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, your uh, your upcoming book, uh, Philip. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I started writing. Um, uh, I, I was working on two things at once. So I, I wrote a textbook called The Family, uh, which came out in 2014. And that took me about six years. So somewhere around 2008, I started working on that. And um at the same time, I started blogging um, about family uh, and inequality issues, and and um, the the logic of doing it was that the textbook was you know taking forever, um, and it it was full of writing a textbook on. I mean, I'm a family sociologist, but 
but 13 chapters, uh, you know, I was only plausibly an expert when I started on maybe three or four mm-hmm. of them. So I learned all kinds of new things and I had no um, uh, feedback or engagement with people for most of that process. Um, so it was kind of lonely and um, uh, and blogging was just kind of catching on. Um, so it was great to be able to do a blog while I did it. Anyway, so that's so short story long um, on the family inequality blog over all those years, I wrote about eight or 900 blog posts. And, um, and usually they had a little bit of data, they had a little bit of an argument, either connected to something in the news or something about research, um, like academic blogs did in the heyday of academic blogs. And um, uh, when I got to the point a year or two ago, where uh, I had this huge body of, of kind of half-baked work um, uh, Naomi Schneider at University of California suggested that I do a, a book of essays. So um, what I ended up doing was kind of content coding them into categories. I took the most, like the most popular 200, coded them into categories, and then started combining them into longer essays, updating all the data. Cool. It was a great process. And uh, so the result is a book of about uh, six or seven chapters, um, uh, sort of grouped on the things. If you read the blog, the things I tend to harp on. Um, so, uh, you know, things like naming practices, poverty, family structure, marriage promotion, Mark Rignaris, um, each of these kind of gets its own chapter, Disney dimorphism. <laughs> Do you recommend? Oh, yeah, the, the, yeah, you, you are not a fan of the dinner plate eyes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do you? Uh, how is that as a process? Would you recommend that to other people to blog a book? Um, well, blog to book is a whole um, is a whole genre now, and there are people who are probably much better at it than I was. Um, but yeah, I do. I mean, the, the great thing about it was um, the all the people that I met and um, and sort of talked about the blog posts with along the way. So people who would, um, you know, when I write about um, cohabitation and marriage, you know, like uh, some people there some. Like as uh, Gust Esping Anderson would like jump on them into cool. my comments and say something, or if I talked about gender segregation, like Bilby would show up and and say things about <laughs> it, and it was great, you know. So I had, uh, uh, you know, I had um, kind of a rolling, um, a, a rolling process, and you know, I had tenure, and um, it, it, it was it was all right that I was publishing less in academic journals and having a more interesting life mm-hmm. um, for a lot of that time. But I, I liked it a lot. I mean, the key thing about writing is writing. You know, if you want to write a lot, if you want to write well, you have to write a lot. If you want to, um, uh, uh, if you want to um, test out your voice and, and uh, you know, figure out uh, what you really have to say. I mean, just, just doing it is, is definitely the way. And so blogging and it's, it's kind of like writing on deadline, um, but all the time. And once, and it's like the drug, you know, once people start liking the blog, um, after a couple of days, I start to feel like lonely and like, gosh, I, I want, I want some more likes. <laughs> so I'm going to write another post and you know, it works. So I, so I have a question, um, you know, so I'm just, I'm just thinking about, uh, I'm thinking about the, the subtitle of your book, which is inequality, marriage, parenting, and everything else that makes families great and terrible. Right. Um, so, um, what are some of the things that make families terrible? Well, um, you know, uh, all the terrible <laughs> things that happen in families, like abuse and exploitation I'm and I'm glad you're not isolation and anxiety. Numbers, but, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's in the case yeah. study chapter. I mean, I hit on the, um, the idea of, of enduring bonds was from a, a um, 
the Obersfeld decision, but Anthony Kennedy's um, uh, decision where he talked mm-hmm. about sort of marriage as this, you know, he, he spoke about it in this very idealistic way, like, um, uh, you know, as we've extended marriage rights, you know, with loving and the interracial marriages and now same-sex marriage, we're sort of extending freedom to people. Um, and uh, Scalia had this very caustic response, which was, um, you're really describing marriage as the extension of freedom. It's literally like a contract that restricts your behavior. Um, so, uh, but, so that kind of, but that's a, that's a recurring tension in families. Like we love families, families are essential for our survival and they make us happy and everybody wants a family. And, and um, yet a lot of the really bad things in the world happen um, in families, um, uh, rape and abuse and violence and exploitation and, 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 you know, stuff like that, which is, you know, a lot of, institutionally protected or um, shielded, hidden. And, and so there's a, there's a dark side. My impression of the United States mm-hmm. is that it's a tough place to raise a family. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think uh, Americans make it easy or do you think it's a particularly difficult place? I think we make it difficult. Um, you know, the wealth and everything really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to exaggerate that. Um, but in some ways we make it a lot more difficult than it has to be. So, um, you know, in some more obvious ways, like, um, uh, work family policies are, are just, you know, kind of brutal with family leave and childcare and, and so on. But the other kind of, a uh, something I try to bring up when I can is, is, um, what inequality, economic inequality is doing. Um, one of the things it does as far as parenting is make, um, the stakes higher. And it's, it's sort of a ratchet where, um, uh, the bigger the difference between success and failure, the more anxiety there is that you're doing it wrong when you're parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, when you add to that, the sort of the, pr- the pressure anxiety that people feel about, um, uh, defining who they are, who their children are. Um, so I have kind of a whole Giddens riff in there about, um, your self narrative and, um, uh, and, and there's a, um, uh, I mean, I, I feel like the inequality increases that stress and anxiety. Um, it's kind of hard to prove that. Well, but, um, in one of our very first episodes, we talked about Ramey and Ramey's Rugrat race, which is, you know, seems to be a special mm-hmm. case of what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I'm not. so basically they argued that one of the things that drives America's current culture of helicopter parenting is um, competition for elite college admission. And so it creates this culture of you have to be, um, you know, hyper involved parenting in order to cultivate the perfect kids so that they can compete in this kind of tournament for access to the elite. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and even and then thinking about it from the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, um, you know, the New York Times is referring to it as the new Jane Crow. Um, but, you know, the fact that in many ways, poverty is criminalized, right? And so, you know, there are low-income families across across the country, and I'm thinking specifically about New York, um, and, you know, like, who are under these, like, these, these levels of hyper-surveillance, where it's like any little thing they do can get their kids taken away, you know, can get them, you know... Uh, under even more heightened levels of surveillance and things that, you know, middle-class families, because they don't have that same interaction with the state, you know, I was saying, it's like, you know, your kid fell down the stairs and, 
you know, your middle class, your middle class parent who has your kid in private preschool, right? It's like, oh, it was an accident. Everyone in the class is going to write a card to you, right? Um, if you're in publicly funded childcare and your kid falls down the stairs, you know, that just might mean you have to be reported to the administration for children's services. So, I totally agree. And I think sort of the, the surveillance is, is um, uh, uh, more coercive, the um, lower down various status hierarchies you get, you know, so um, uh, you know, the helicopter parents put themselves under a certain amount of pressure and there's, there's, pressure from their friends and people in their neighborhood and schools and so on. And then, um, uh, and then, the, then you get down to the police. We had a, um, mm-hmm. we adopted our kids in the, um, uh, the first time we had a social worker who came to the house and was doing the interview and um, doing the home study. And she went through the interview. She asked us about our parenting style and um, you know, it, it's, it's not hard to know what to say to, to pass this, but the truth is, um, we were pretty much accepted the minute she walked in the house and saw um, how it was going. Um, uh, you know, in our race and class, and we're professors and the you know um, academics, and there we are in the um, in the in private home. And, and she, but she had to ask a few uncomfortable questions like, "Do you have um, hot water?" Any? <laughs> do you have hot water? Um, she asked at one point. She asked if there, if we had any um, uh, sort of sex abuse in our past, and she literally said to us, "Say no." Really? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's like, just let's just not go down this road. You know, like everything's going well here. Just so you know, I don't really want to know the answer to this question because oh, wow. um, things are going fine. Um, what a crazy anyway. question to ask, though, to be required to ask. Yeah. Um, California, it was California. Um, the other, um, um, I actually don't know if it was her agency that was, you know, had done that or if there was some law that made her do that. We also went through a mandatory um, diversity training um, as adoptive parents, uh, internationally adopting parents, which um, which was fine. It was one night a week for six or seven weeks um, with a bunch of other parents who were adopting kids from, from other countries. And uh, uh yeah, it was it was awkward in the case of the family from Bangladesh that was adopting um, a relative that was also from Bangladesh, um, but they had to go through all the you know you, how traumatic it's going to be for the child and the language gap and the and the sort of the privilege stuff and uh, and it well was, they didn't anyway. have a homophily training class available. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. What it's like to adopt a kid that's really a lot yeah. like you <laughs> and is in fact your second cousin. <laughs> And now, a word from Editor Bain. I am Academic Publishing's Reckoning, here to end the library subscriptions you've all been living on. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Philip Cohn from the University of Maryland, His book coming out this spring is Enduring Bonds, Inequality, Marriage, Parenting, and Everything Else That Makes Families Great or Terrible from the University of California Press. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Sochannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Gabriel Rossman and Leslie Hinkson, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.